So you're all very welcome back. We're here back in the Rathcrohan Visitor Centre in Ross Common with uh, Daniel. And we're going to do the tour of the museum and the artefacts here. So we're just walked through the gift shop, which is fantastic. And we are coming we're staring at the beautiful, is it, it's a little stream? Yeah, the Ogola River, yeah. Uh, so this would have, uh, it has its source maybe just to the southwest of, of uh, the village of Tullskir itself, as is an ecclesiastical site there. St. Patrick is associated as well, but that actually flows eventually. It connects up into the River Shannon as you go further east as well. So this is the Ogola River that runs through the village. Um, immediately as we look out the window, however, we also have this replica of an enormous oak idol. Uh, so this was excavated, the original of this was excavated only about six kilometres up toward northeast at a place called Gartnacrana as part of the N5 realignment road scheme. So this replica is uh, a demonstration of what it would have looked like when it was found standing. It was over three metres tall. This particular piece of oak is taken from Glen Malure and uh, it was carved by a group of um, archaeologists that were part of the AMS um, excavation crew uh, down in Craigenown in County Clare. And then it was our inevitable job to try and re- return it back into the museum. Um, so we had a, a perfect, nearly, uh, you couldn't plan it any better in terms of the physical environment. Because this physical environment, as we look out the window, with its reeds and its various grasses and the wetland environment, is pretty much uh, on the nail in terms of what the original artefact was standing in. And it was also standing on, on, the, on the bank of a river. So our idol is a very, um, I suppose, abstract um, a human humanoid type head on its top and then it's covered over its course by nine notches that are carved into the body itself it's very enigmatic we're not fully sure well we're not sure in any real sense as to what it might represent and there's plenty of queries and plenty of theories that are abounding about it but this would have stood as a very commanding shadow over the river the Owen Your River in that sense which is again an, another tributary that ev- eventually ends up in the River Shannon over to our east and very close by to us here it's dated to the centuries just prior to St. Patrick arrived on the island and it could be bound up with a whole you know um pre-christian uh deity um entity surrounding it and the, the actual site itself at Gartnacrana was replete with with animal bone probably suggested of a feasting and butchery but also there's also a, a series of skulls that were human skulls that were found over the course of uh, the river um throughout the throughout the, the last century and a half effectively and uh they may be given us some slight hint as to what was taking place out there as well so certainly it's, it's a thing to behold and we're actually doing a condition report on this site as well on a weekly basis to see how the oak degrades or degrades through time um in terms of his exposure to the elements as well so there's a number of things that are going on with regard to it yeah visually it's very interesting it's very reminiscent of polynesian um totem poles or or like you'd see in the native american indians um so but without the detail that has carved in so it is very abstract and it's it's quite commanding and you've popped a couple of animal skulls in front of it too as well so there's a lot of drama there it really sets up and and you find in ritual landscapes they would have created uh, drama for for the people that were coming to use the landscape Oh, very much so, yeah. I mean, we're, the picture that has emerged through the excavation is that of jetties out onto the river itself. It's talking about um, corn drying kilns actually being inserted in some cases even into a burial mound. There's both settlement, burial, uh, you could call them industrial processes, but certainly the processing of your resources at this environment. And the idea that starts to emerge perhaps, and certainly if the seasonal 
um, slaughter of these stock uh, can be recognised uh, in in the in the um, in the actual osteo reports. It may actually even suggest that perhaps a certain point of the year has been focused upon for this type of uh, butchery, and indeed you could use the word sacrifice as well. So the idea that perhaps even if they are aligned to a period around October November time. You could be talking about a location in the hinterland, in the wider district around Rathcrohan, where by Samhain might be uh, celebrated if you're not effectively going to the, the, the central hub at Rathcrohan itself. So there's a number of things at play here. You can imagine the trade would have been important in terms of its river route as well, the ease which you can bring commodities out from the local area out into the wider region by virtue of these rivers, these small rivers that we don't really recognise as being incredibly important today. But in times past, these would have been vital arteries in and out of the local area as well. Actually, it's very interesting listening to you talk about that. It reminds me of a trip to Nepal and the hinterland of Kathmandu and the Kali Temple. And it was just rocked up at the right time for a sacrifice. Um, and, and it was, a, a, it was a, a day of ritual but celebration as well. And it was really quite fascinating to behold. Look, I mean, these are the things that unfortunately in, in our modern Irish context we can only uh, picture together either from global examples or from you know trawling through material be it literature be it folklore from the more recent past that maybe hasn't survived to the present day for the last 80 to 150 years but certainly as we start to try and pick these together we need to borrow from and get a greater understanding of what our global counterparts are doing in order to try and see uh, how this picture fits because uh, it's, it is a part of the Irish uh, mindset the Irish history culture that uh, is very faint now so certainly it's something that we need to look at in an in Irish context. Most definitely, that comparison with other cultures to see what tantalising clues we might be able to pick up from an artefact is, is really important. So we're going to head on to the next part of the tour now and we're walking into a lovely welcome area. It's, it's a really beautifully populated museum and we're very blessed to have this here in Roscommon. So where are we heading to now, Daniel? So you've gone through the first little sections of the museum. We have a representative figure of a late Iron Age uh, warrior or high-status individual. You've got your first audiovisual and its timeline that kind of sets the scene from a chronological point of view. And now we're basically, I suppose you could describe it as the central atrium of the entire museum. And that's, uh, that's the location where we've housed our museum display case. So this is part of a Roscommon Leader Partnership-funded uh, project in 2019, 1819. And that enabled us, we are now the only non-county museum in the country to have artefacts on loan from the National Museum. So it's a collection of 35 artefacts housed within our bespoke display case um, that basically give us little hints, little ideas of past societies in the Midrus Common area. So they go from everything from your domestic and uh, everyday items in the form of shears, or you've got a selection of knives through to personal uh, ornamentation. We have a small little amber bead and a glass bead. We have lignite bracelet. We've got belt buckles from the more recent past. You've got equestrian material being uh, focused upon in another section. And as you chart around the course of the um, museum display case itself, you have everything from feasting and entertainment in the form of harp pegs and feasting forks through to your uh, hunting and warfare-related items in the form of, obviously, your axes and your um, swords uh, shield bosses, arrowheads, um, through to the ritual and religious, which is up on the summit. And that has everything from a very interesting uh, crescent lamp, uh, which was probably a place for oil or for incense to be burnt. And that was actually found, according to the label that's still attached to it, which is fabulous in its own right, um, at Rathcrohan Mound itself uh, by antiquarians. And then also we have uh, a beautiful ceramic bowl of roughly 
3,000 years old, um, which was excavated out of a Barrow monument in Four Mile House, literally only you know, seven kilometres to the south of us. And we also have the very fragmentary uh, shape of a, an, an early medieval high cross. Uh, again, only from maybe 500 metres away uh, because that was located within the ecclesiastical site at Ogala. Um, and that has a much, um, a very interesting, rather salacious uh, later history in terms of its uh, thievery out of the, the, the graveyard in the 1990s. Ended up in a, an antique shop in ba- Bagot Street before finally being uh, brought back to, to Rathcrohan, to Tulsk and, and to the vicinity around Ogala where we can, you know, uh, retain our own cultural heritage, raw material culture uh, in its local area as well. So there's, a, there's basically a story with every artefact here, and no different than the, the very large oak idol uh, replica that we have out the window. Um, every single piece has a way in which we can just uh, tack into a part of our culture that perhaps is, is a little bit more faint and a little bit less visible today. And uh, that's the beauty of what we have in the case. And it's really quite remarkable to see what's here, and they range from... Uh, Iron Age, what's the earliest piece here? Oh, the earliest man-made piece here is actually a very tiny arrowhead just located here, a little flint arrowhead, which was actually found over Rathra. Uh, Rathra will be outside of Casa Plunkett down to our southwest. And Rathra's an enormous uh, quadrivallet um, uh, enclosure and uh, housed within it are two fabulous burial mounds. But this Neolithic arrowhead, which is roughly, you know, 5,000, maybe 5,500 years old, is the first indication we have of a worked item within the case. See, it's quite fascinating and in such a really rich area with these finds. Um, what's the most interesting thing for me in this case, I would have to say, is the tiny fry pan. Can you tell us a little bit more about the tiny little frying pan? Yeah, so effectively, I suppose it depends on the day you get us. Uh, it could well be described as a quail's egg pan, uh, if you're going to be that way inclined. But the likelihood is it's probably part of some skilled artisan's uh, toolkit. It's probably for, for melting uh, precious or semi-precious uh, metal in order to create something of, of fine personal adornment. And that's likely to ha- be how it was because even the loops that are located on it would suggest that it was part of something that was hanging, so something that was brought around to people. It's obviously too small to be of any function for delivery of a full Irish breakfast, I suppose, in a modern context. You definitely couldn't cook a full Irish breakfast in that. Um, it's quite fascinating, though, because they would have been, uh, uh, say, different uh, skilled people that would have travelled through the landscape here? Oh, very much so. Like, I mean, if you're a skilled artisan, I mean, you have you have a bounty in your head in some respects because you can travel and you can make wealth out of uh, your craft, your skill, and it's not something that's easy got. That's something that we kind of have forgotten about or maybe perhaps we've lost as a, as, a, as a society, certainly in Ireland, is that our skills, even if they're musical skills, even if they're, um, you know, working with timber or working with any material, be it textiles or whatever, um, we maybe are starting to lose a lot of that. And so little indications like that, even down, you know, textile shears, you know, the way in which we can, you know, deal with the natural environment. Uh, I wouldn't say harness because that's not really the way we should be looking at it, you know, but work alongside it in order to uh, sustain ourselves uh, is something that this case kind of tells us a little bit about as well. Yeah, it's really quite remarkable. And just while we're on the subject of artefacts, would you just let the, the listeners know if they ever find anything, exactly what they should do? Yeah, certainly. So your first protocol is immediately to go to the National Monument Service. Uh, it's to report it uh, with as much information as you can provide. That would be everything down to the fine spot. Try and preserve that as best you possibly can. It would be a case of ensuring that they have uh, all information as they possibly 
um, can, can have at hand in order that they can make a judgment on, on the nature of the, the item itself and it's the, the priority would be to preserve it and preserve it in its context so that they can understand what's going on if it's in danger it's something that also needs to be reported and certainly if you find people that are engaging in activities that are located on archaeological sites um, that seem to be illegal uh, it's important to report that also Obviously, we wouldn't argue that anyone would uh, approach someone or accost someone if they don't feel suitably uh, able to do so. But it's certainly a case that uh, uh, situations such as metal detecting uh, on an archaeological site without a license and indeed digging or disturbance of any kind on an archaeological site is illegal and it needs to be reported and needs to be um, dealt with by the, the forces of the law. So these are parts of our cultural heritage and uh, what we make up of ourselves and understand of ourselves. So it's something that we feel very strongly about making sure that we preserve for the next generation. Absolutely. And context is important. If you find something, take photos. If you, if you feel like you can't leave it there, take photographs, write down details because we learn a lot from the context. Would you explain people uh, about that a bit more, Daniel? Well, certainly, for, for even from the most superficial nature, I mean, if you're finding something that's in the, the boundary ditch of a ring fort, say, for instance, it's a case that that has a value to, for, for us as archaeologists to be able to understand uh, why it was deposited there, how it may have found itself to be there, but also even the location with it is, is located within the soil uh, strata itself maybe gives us an indication of how long it, uh, since it was deposited there and, and what part of the story of a particular monument that it may be able to relate to. And indeed, some cases they're not being found at monuments even in of themselves, but irrespective of that, the information that we have at these sites and of these monuments, of these artefacts in particular, uh, is, is inherently bound up as to where they're found. So we can't have one without the other. And it is so true. So I'm looking at some... Uh artifacts of war here yeah certainly so so we i suppose it's it's always a very major preoccupation of any museum to make sure that there's loads of sharp pointy things to, to excite the imagination of people uh, so we have an iron age spear that would be belong belonging to the individual at the entrance here the iron age man and then we also have a, a lovely replica a 16th century um what we call a hand and a half it's effectively a, a gaelic irish sword style um, it has an open ring pommel, which is very peculiarly Irish in its makeup as well. And its quillions are twisted or turned and they have a lovely little cross, uh, uh, a little cross shape on, on their corners as well. So this replica is actually a replica of one that was found between uh, Atleague and Ballinasloe on the River Suck. So this is high status piece of... Um, work the blade itself is most likely imported from uh, central europe probably germany and then in in irish crafts hands uh, we're turning out the open ring pommel and the peculiar irish style so the scabbard that's alongside it again is traditional it looks a little bit uh, obscure for those that would be more familiar with uh, you know your hollywood depictions of medieval the medieval world but these scabbards are not alongside loops for a belt they're actually probably held in the hand and this more agile, more mobile, more fluid nature of warfare uh, was something that was a hallmark of uh, a Gaelic warfare throughout the medieval period where, you know, huge campaign battles uh, where you're bringing many heavy horses into the field just doesn't happen. It's a different approach that we take in Ireland, a guerrilla warfare style where you're using the landscape to your advantage. And certainly these little pieces of uh, information that we have from the warfare side of things uh, is incredibly important as we try and re-understand as to how our ancestors viewed the world, viewed the, the environment around it and how uh, they worked within it in order to uh, live peacefully but also in uh, hard times in order to make sure that they survived through hard times as well. 
Yeah, the scabbard is very interesting. It's leather and it has tassels on the end, but it it's, uh, reminds me a bit. I'm a student of ninjutsu, and it reminds me a little bit of the the swords we use uh, with the scabbards that are not attached. There, there might be a you put them through your belt so that you can lose them quickly if needs be. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Right on to the next part of this beautiful museum tour. Um, so I suppose the nature in which it appears we have something that tries to uh, target every section of um, the demographics. So we have little home inscriptions that are located on the walls. So for our younger visitors, they can go out and they can visit it and maybe uh, translate some of these home inscriptions as part of a workbook that we also provide to the visitor at the entrance. We have information panels that deal with different other categories of monuments that make up the archaeology here at Rathcrohan, from burial mounds through to settlement sites through to the ritual monuments themselves. And indeed, we have a model of one of our sites, which is the cave at Onagoth, which is obviously, we describe it as the clean version, because uh, it doesn't mean you have to get destroyed in mud in order to access that particular uh, ritual site. We even have Labraki images. Louis Labraki uh, was famously commissioned in order to illustrate Thomas Kinsella's translation of the Thon into English. And we have a series of Louis Labraki's prints reproduced up on our wall as well. So those of an artistic mind uh, can appreciate the, the value that Louis Labraki's uh, images provided to the Thon, an art version of the telling of the Thon within that as well. And as you chart through the, the museum itself, it gives you an opportunity to go chronologically from our earliest origins certainly as far back as the Iron Age and a lot earlier through to the medieval period and our figures, our representative figures uh, deliver that as well. Um, so as we get into the medieval period we can see individuals that are dressed up in an elite uh, uh, lady uh, she's dressed in her Shinron gown reproduction, which actually has 15 metres of woolen cloth located within it. And the Shinron gown, the original, was found uh, on the Offaly Tipperary border. So she's dressed as someone of very high status in her period. And then we also have uh, a, basically a bodyguard, the, a medieval kern, and he's dressed in his lena, his brat. He has his targe, which is his shield, a series of darts. He has his skein, which is his his knife. And he has his lockabar axe, which he probably stole off a gala glass um, maybe removing the head in the process as well and uh, the whole nature is bound up in that and trying to give it a sense of and maybe celebrate uh, Gaelic Irish style of dress uh, culture and uh, armament in, in respects as well something that isn't always depicted even in Ireland in terms of uh, how we understand our cultural heritage. No, I have to say the bodyguard is not what I was expecting. He, his shoes in particular, they're uh, sewn together, hide. They, they look like a pair of slippers almost. And, and he's wearing an almost Romanesque style uh, toga dress thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically we would refer to it as the Lena. The colour is important because it's a saffron coloured uh, item of clothing and the brighter the saffron it demonstrates the higher status of the individual involved. And we do know from the historic accounts that these, uh, these Lena, these, these linen uh, uh, garments, the, the, the greater the, the rolls of cloth involved again demonstrates wealth and status. So the more voluptuous the, the actual uh, linen itself, uh, you, the higher in rank you were. Uh, so we do have examples of the crocus being uh, both harvested in Ireland and also being brought in as a trade item, uh, the stamens in order to dye these clothes. And obviously the lower ends of society, we actually have references to urine being used as a substitute uh, to, to get the yellow colour also. The brat, there's various different uh, depictions of the brat, of the mantle, the great cloak, and these are kind of of a type you describe as being of a summer uh, variety they're lighter in their nature but our iron age man indeed has a very heavy woolen shaggy mantle and these are actually a trade item that are exported out of ireland throughout the later medieval period and the irish become very known for the delivery of this uh this 
luxury item effectively across uh, continental Europe um, in the 15th and 16th centuries in particular. So the Lena and the Brath are very particular types of Irish dress that uh, we have maybe forgotten about in some respects, but they're, they're rather peculiar to modernise as well, and that's something that we always have to, uh, I suppose, phrase for the, for the visitor. Yeah, and it's worth a look, and the colour is really interesting, and the, the yellow that you have here is that as close to the real colour as you think it is? It certainly is as close as we, we've been able to get it, yeah. It's, it's not something that's easy got in a modern context, but uh, yeah, we, we, we'd like to think that it's, it's, it's close enough to what you'd expect to see if you were transported back into the 15th or 16th centuries. They're really quite a spectacular figure, uh, the pair of them. It's really quite incredible. And there is lots of wonderful things here for the kids. There's a, a what did they have for dinner in Tulsk 600 years ago that the kids can come and play with and, and try and, I guess, guess what they were having. Yeah, it's very good. It's very, I like the interactive uh, quality of, of what you have here where there truly is something for everyone. So now we're heading into a little theatre. Oh, I've been in here for conferences. Yeah, beautiful. We would operate our, uh, our second part of our tour from the point of view of trying to depict the mythological framework of Rathgrohan alongside its archaeological counterpart is displayed through the second audiovisual room. So that gives uh, the, the film that allows us to kind of retell aspects of the thorn to the visitor as well. So that also doubles up as our conference room, as you've rightly pointed out, a seminar room. We've had music performances here, cookery demonstrations, and indeed we have a farm uh, farm meeting tonight here at uh, half seven. So it's a case that it's a multi-purpose room and it's one of the mechanisms that allows us to, I suppose, uh, make sure that we're uh, a centre for all, really, that it's a resource for everyone. And uh, we'd like to try and celebrate that fact as well. I think that's really important. I think... Uh Community archaeology is a very important part of the work that is done by archaeologists and involving communities in their heritage, even if it means in a multi-purpose way. The roof is really interesting here. Yeah, so one of the things we tried to achieve there was to try and give it off a slight impression for the visitor that might want to go out on the tour that it has a cave-like impression to it and it's just a nod to that uh, while dealing with the limitations of uh, what is a flat roof as well as everything else. Yeah, no, it's, it's very cool for anyone that gets to come and sit in here. So we're heading back out into the light now and down a beautiful cor corridor where I see a beautiful stained glass window and other bits and pieces. We'll let Daniel explain. Yeah, so basically I suppose the stained glass is representative of an approach that we've always sought to achieve here at Rathcrohan. We don't have a static museum exhibit by virtue of the fact that we have this case, we have a series of cases in here that are only installed in the more recent past. The stained glass window here was donated to us by the now defunct, unfortunately, Rathcrohan National School, which is located out on the Rathcrohan Plateau itself. And the students... Uh, some years prior to its closure, uh, were successful in an Arts Council grant to deliver a training uh, exercise, an artistic training exercise uh, with the stained glass um, expert. And what they delivered out was uh, something that was very heavily inspired by the children and their environment around them. So in the centre of the stained glass, we have this beautiful depiction of Queen Maeve. Uh, we have the cave represented down in this, the, the very bottom of the, the actual image itself. We've got the brown and the white bull. We have one of the forts as well. And the army is starting to emerge out of as well. And there's little bits and pieces. And it's fabulous to be able to excite in the next generation uh, this heritage and make sure that it remains vibrant. Uh, and it's something that's not just stuck in the history books. Now, unfortunately, because the school had to close down because of lack of, um, of, of pupils, 
it meant that the stained glass was going to just disappear. It was just going to end up uh, in, a, in an empty space. And thankfully, we were able to uh, bring it into the visitor centre, which is it's, it allows it to be clocked by every set of eyes that walk through the building and celebrate it for what it is. So we're very proud to be able to represent that, but we'd much prefer that it was located out in the primary school where it should be. Um, so that's just one indication. We already have plans ahead for another uh, slight renovation to the museum in times come, uh, hopefully towards the end of this year. But uh, it's it's these projects sometimes are clouded in uh, financial uh, uh, conditions. So we're hoping that we get a successful grant of a, a, a quantity of money in order so that we can engage in a project around the ohm stones that are located in the Midrus Common area and, and gather them together as a collection, both digitally and perhaps even in person uh, in the visitor centre itself. And I think that's really important to note uh an archaeological landscape is not just one feature, it's a series of features that interlinked with each other, as well as the artefacts involved with each feature. Is that correct? Oh, very much so. I mean, even the information panels that are put on the walls here were done in association with uh, the Tulsk History Society, which is a recently formed heritage group in the area. And if we look at them, they're very much aspects of the 19th century cultural heritage of the area. So we're just looking at Percy French here in front of us, who would have been inspired by his locality. Douglas Hyde, Roderick O'Connor... Uh, and a whole litany of other individuals uh, would have taken their inspiration out of this landscape. And that shows the continued interest, the continued valuing, the continued fascination with a place that has been farmed for the last 5,500 years. And people have resided out here in some fashion or form and sought to impress an importance upon this place for that same period and longer, I'm sure. So we need to ensure that there's a vibrancy out here into the next generation and excite any opportunity that allows us to do that. So even simple things like we were uh, subject to two letters of support requests from different artists. One wants to uh, create a documentary based on Rathcrawan and another artist wants to seek inspiration from the landscape in and of itself to create our own artistic installations. And there are things that we can't turn down because they are part of the whole evolving story of Rathcrawan. It's not a static museum implement. It's not a static landscape. It's a thing that's constantly evolving. And we need to make sure that it evolves in a manner that everyone is able to derive a resource, derive a value and importance out of it. And I think in, in noting that out to our listeners, I think you start to really see even in uh, prehistory and history how important mythology was because that's almost what you're doing again. You're creating a whole new mythology around the landscape here. Yeah, yeah like, I mean, in effect, our ancestors, our deep ancestors here valued the landscape that was providing to them. Perhaps the value of that landscape is seen in a slightly different fashion today, but it's still equally as important. And the stories, the literature, the folklore that inspires us has inspired me to become an archaeologist, has inspired my colleagues to do the same, should allow our visitors to take something of the rootedness and the just anything, any small hint of, of, of the importance that this place brings for them and maybe bring it back to their own places and, and kind of reconceive of or recognise something that's slightly different of their own areas as well. So that's, that's what we're trying to achieve. We're very incredibly proud of what we have around us here and what we're able to bring to the visitor. And we just want to inspire them to maybe do the same or conceive of the same in their own local, localities as well. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I was actually just thinking while you were talking there, I my own uh, archaeological uh, studies inspired me to write a novel, so I may have to set part three here in Rathcrohan and link it all together. Well, certainly, if, if it's suitable enough for Queen Maeve and Alil to have their pillow talk, it's a suitable setting for anyone that wants to set, set their story. It sounds amazing. So we're almost out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about uh, this wonderful museum? So I suppose the museum will also host a whole series of different events over the course of the year. We have a very interesting International Association of Comparative Mythology Conference taking place here in August. 
um, which may be uh, something that hopefully will bring a huge collection of delegates globally to come to our small part of Roscommon uh, in order to celebrate all matters related to that. We have our Community Archaeology Conference, which we will intend to host in the, the early weeks of November as well. And so that's an opportunity to keep an eye out open for. And we'll also have Heritage Week events and various little different things that will be uh, celebrated and talked about on our social media. And uh, I'm sure you can connect in with those in some cases in person, but also we will be hopefully offering opportunities for those that want to visit us remotely uh, at any of these events uh, in certain respects as well. That's amazing. And I really like the idea you're bringing a mythological conference here, comparative mythology. Could you tell us a bit about that? Uh, I can to a point. I'm no, I'm by no means an expert on it. Uh, but basically, the International Association of Comparative Mythology, we've had some connections with them over the last short while in terms of writing a paper. And uh, it seemed as if Tulsk and Rathcrohan and the Midrash Common Area in general should suit as a, serve as a suitable uh, location for their annual conference. So we're delighted to welcome them here. And it's a case that we want to get fresh eyes on what we have out here. We will be explaining the same stories that we've talked about and more besides and get their insights from the world over and what they may recognise as different or the same or how we better understand how the, the, um, the area represents itself to us and how we can understand it better as well. That sounds fantastic. I think we might have to come down and do several series of shows with you. Um, so that's uh, Daniel. We're walking out of this beautiful museum now. So it's it's short and sweet, but packed with many, many, many things for everyone, both in terms of what you can read about, what you can experience. Uh, and then we it feeds back into the wonderful gift shop. So tell us a little bit about the gift shop, which I also feel has something for everyone. Yeah, so what we've always tried to do is we've tried to be able to celebrate local craftspeople and people that are uh, engaging in local, uh, I suppose, art, artisan work. So we have work there from Not Crockery with the Own Wishes through to a, a lovely glass worker um, called Catch the Light from, from Longford. And we're basically, we're always actively seeking out people that are able to uh, work with their hands and, and it's, it's, provide an offering really an opportunity for them to be able to display their work for sale we also use the opportunity of our gift shop uh, to create basically a high standard of um, local and heritage interest uh, books and publications so certainly for those that maybe wanted to publish a book and don't necessarily have a direct avenue for for direct sales into the into the physical public domain we really would like to hear from you particularly from from anywhere in in connacht or or from the midlands as well and uh, we also like to supplement that with the most up-to-date of archaeology and historical books that we can provide and we're always looking for something a bit different we try and promote our own uh, merchandise and our own quirky merchandise so it's not just what you'd get in uh, any other tourist spot we're looking for something that people can treasure for years to come and uh, it allows us then just to kind of uh, celebrate our local um, producers and suppliers in the process I have to say, as somebody that loves gift shops at archaeological sites, this is one of my favourites, and I have bought many books here over the years. So we were talking to Daniel Curley at Rathcrohan uh, Visitor Centre. So come on down in the summer. Come and visit. Just tell us all one more time uh, your opening hours over the summer. Yeah, so we'll be open 9.15 to 4.30, and our tours will run Monday to Friday, uh, 12 noon and 2 p.m., uh, all throughout from May to the end of August. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Daniel. Cheers.